Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. Hope you're all very well. I have a little bit of news here and it is of particular interest to people in the UK and of particular interest to people who love our mothership of a TV show, QI. Now you all know QI, it's facts, it's funny, it's just like fish, uh, but it's been going for a full 20 years. And the big news is that all 20 series of QI are now available on BBC iPlay. So as you probably know, each series of QI is represented by a letter of the alphabet, and so you can go back and watch facts about astronomy, about bees, about campanology, about dog... Well, you get the idea. It's 20 series of QI, so many facts, so many amazing moments from over the years, and it is all, as I said, available on BBC iPlayer. And of course, it wouldn't be a top-of-the-show announcement if I didn't remind you all that we are going back on the road in autumn. If you live in Scotland or in Wales, or indeed, I think we have one show coming up also in London, then do go to qi.com slash events and get your tickets fast because I know for a fact that some of those dates are just on the verge of selling out. Anyway, before you go to iPlayer to binge on all the episodes of QI, we better get on with this week's show. So, on with the podcast! Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber, I am sitting here with James Harkin, Anna Tashinsky and Andrew Hunter-Murray and once again we have gathered round the microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, that is Andy. My fact is that in 1944, the book The Great Gatsby sold 120 copies. In 1945, the number of copies printed was 155,000. <laughs> wow. I know. What a switcheroo at the what end. A, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't realise how I was going to deliver it until I got towards the end and I thought, I've just said 120. Why not say 155 and then ramp it up? Anyway. Wow. Great, great behind the scenes insight. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, we've got to show how the sausage is made. Yeah. yeah. So uh, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald was a book that was quite popular at first and then it really tailed off and then by you know by 1944 pretty much no one was buying it and it was practically out of print so then in the second world war though there was this mad scheme that was run by a load of american publishing titans Uh, they clubbed together and they formed this thing called the council on books in wartime and they decided that they wanted to print and sell millions of books to the army so the army bought the books and then they, the, those books were distributed free to the soldiers uh, and okay. they were made incredibly cheap and 122 million books were given away to soldiers wow and it basically created the paperback book market in america That's they weren't wild. really popular and then and they were to fit huge. in the pocket weren't they yeah, so, which is why Gatsby is good because it's unbelievably short. It is. <laughs> yeah, but if you if you were shot and it like went ploughed straight through yeah. your copy of The Great Gatsby, you'd rather have Allah and Shesh the Tom Perdue now, <laughs> yeah. you know, like one volume on each breast, <laughs> what, two on your back. <laughs> Come on, where are the other three going? Uh, one over the genitals and <laughs> one on either Maybe side two of the over the genitals. <laughs> yeah, why not? So he died in 1940, and Fitzgerald. Yeah, Fitzgerald yeah. died in 1940. The book was originally published 
published in 1925. Yeah. He didn't achieve any success in his life, much to the point of like, we all know that book and his name now. Was this the moment that made him yeah. a global yeah, name? Yeah, pretty rhyme? much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was, he was very famous uh, as a literary figure in the early 20s for mm. his first couple of books or book it was beautiful in the damned wasn't it that he wrote yeah. um, which did very well and he was a famous figure on the literary scene he made a good amount of money but it was just that gatsby when it came out uh, it, in the early 20s was yeah. quite well received by some people and not by others it was yeah. just like when a book comes out he thought it was brilliant good. didn't he? he thought it was like the great american oh, novel his, his review I mean, was a five star <laughs> yeah. 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 but then yeah. it was only after the war that it became accepted that it was the great american yeah novel. exactly yeah like right. so from these days it sells about half a million copies every year wow. compare that with 120 copies just you know a few years after his death I mean it was it so was this nowhere. year it sold about 500 thousand I didn't see where you were going with that um, yeah uh, like Hannah said these books came um, to fit in your pocket right yeah um, there was two different sizes one to fit in your shirt pocket one to fit in your pants they were quite flimsy what? They cost six cents each to make. Yeah. Uh, you can still get hold of them today. And Andy, seeing <gasps> as today is your publication day for your novel, oh. I brought you a gift. OMG. <laughs> and that is one of these books. Oh my God. Rumble, rumble, rumble. Which one is it? Well, I couldn't get hold be? of The Great Gatsby, unfortunately. Uh, but this is the selected plays of Eugene O'Neill. <laughs> nice. But it is genuinely one of the ones that was given to the armed services. Oh, dude, that is so wow. cool. Thank you. Yeah, so welcome. take it out. Let's see, yeah, let's see yeah. the flimsiness of it. This is so cool. They were kind of um, printed in landscape. Yeah. And they would yeah. have I'm two seeing that columns. Right now and it's shocking to see. Sorry, go on. <laughs> Way broader than it is tall. But they would have two columns on each page. So you yeah. get more in than, you know, a normal book in quite that a small amount. That is so cool. Oh, thank you, James. Oh, well, that's awesome. And it says, Overseas Edition for the Armed Forces, yeah. distributed by blah, 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 published by Editions for the Armed Services. So another place that owns these books is the University of Texas, which mm -hmm. has about 1,400. And because they were printed on magazine presses, mm. so they were very, they really were, and they, they sort of printed them like a magazine mm. and then they just sliced it in half so the University of Texas ones they're really brittle and brown these days because mm. you know the paper was not designed to last for 80 years and they're kept in a thing called tuxedo cases oh. that's cool which is it's described as an acid-free enclosure to keep them pristine. I have looked, it just looks like they're in a box. But, uh... <laughs> Do most boxes have lots of acid in them? I, I don't have my boxes specify that they're acid-free. Does that all, mean they're full of acid? Unfortunately, librarians kept putting them in with the acid. Oh, <laughs> those big acid vats they have yeah, yeah. in libraries. So um, comic books were quite popular. Um, Terry and the Pirates was one of the ones that was quite popular by a cartoonist called Milton Caniff. Uh, and the ones that he did for the military contained, and this is a quote, damsels as breasty and near nude as Caniff dared draw them. Wow. <laughs> so he took his quite like normal comic strip and thought, well, this is for the soldiers, so wow. I'm going to add boobs. Nice. Speaking of comic books and associated culture, mm -hmm. um, the video game Legend of Zelda. Yes. Yeah. We probably remember playing as children. Um, what, oh, all adults, maybe? Yeah, I've bought one recently, actually. Cool. That's <laughs> absolutely fine, and no judgment here. Um, it was named after Zelda Fitzgerald, Scott's wife. Oh. I didn't know that. Yeah. Although, who else might it be named after? It's not a very common name, is it, Zelda? Well, she, she was named after two random other people from books, wasn't she? <clears throat> she was named after someone from a book, wasn't she? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think her mum found two references to Hang on, was it like a, oh, it wasn't like someone called Zelina and someone called Dar? No. <laughs> <laughs> Fitzgerald, just as uh, his career, I didn't realise that he had a bit of a moment in Hollywood. 
you know, potentially he was going to be one of the biggest Hollywood script writers, but he just didn't quite get the break that he needed. And he was part of this group that were called uh, the Legions of Jerks. And that was, a, that was a name given to them by Jack Warner. And it was quite an amazing pack of writers that were working for Hollywood in that time, in that sort of underneath that name. So you had Aldous Huxley, you had Anthony Powell, you had Dorothy Parker. Um, you it's basically had, the Algonquin group, really, yeah, sounds it's, like. It's so interesting, yeah, but they were all there trying to pump out scripts. And like yeah. Fitzgerald was brought on, I don't think they used any of his work for it, but he did a week on <clears> Gone <throat> with the Wind. So, Did he? Yeah, like it's such didn't a big he go win. there because Zelda had got sick and he needed to make some money or something? Yes, I think so I think. he was really he was yeah. going through a bad patch. There's a lot of rumors that he was an alcoholic in this period, and he was he had a lot of alcoholic problems. But I think in this specific moment with Hollywood, he was actually quite productive, and he was off the alcohol. He was drinking cases of Coca Cola apparently to sort of you know right. replace one addiction <laughs> with another, <laughs> just distract himself. Wow. Um, and he produced a lot of work, and there's something like 2,000 pages in an archive sitting somewhere of screenplays, of doctored scripts that he did, um, but virtually none of them, except I think one credit he has yeah. uh, properly for a movie. It wasn't very... Like, he, he only wrote a few novels, and there were a few batches of short stories, and mm. I don't know, the whole thing seems to have gone off a bit half-cocked, his life, you know, it just wasn't very... He joined the army hoping to die. I didn't know this in the First World War. <laughs> so he, he'd been rejected by a woman called Ginevra. And again, weird. Wow. Weird name, Ginevra de Zelda. Anyway, he'd been rejected by her. She'd said, no, absolutely not. I think she was extremely wealthy and he was extremely not wealthy. Um, and, Sounds about right. Yeah. And so uh, he joined the army hoping to die. Trained under Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah. Big yeah. deal. Ah, wow. Yeah. Um, and then he quickly wrote a 120,000 word novel in the hope that it would sell before he died. Um, and then anyway, the war ended, so he was fine. So, because <laughs> the period where you were American and then being trained and then definitely getting to the war was yeah, quite yeah. a narrow window because of how yeah. late uh, America joined the First World War. So, quite impressive to quickly write a 120,000 word novel. You've just <laughs> yeah. written a novel, Andy. Do you think you could have spaffed that out in uh, interims between army service? Uh, spaffed out is a funny way of uh, putting, <laughs> putting your heart and soul into something. But, um. Well, there was an interesting thing about that, wasn't there? Because later on, it took him a bit longer to write the novels. He couldn't just spaff them out. Um, but when Zelda got sick, because she had um, mental problems, right, mm. mental issues, and he was kind of looking after her and going to Hollywood and doing all this stuff. And so it took even longer for him to write his novel. And at the same time, Zelda decided to write a novel called Save Me the Waltz, which he thought used all of his material. Mm. And what had actually done, it was about their life, right? So who it belongs to, it belongs yeah, to whoever yeah, writes yeah. it first. Uh, but he was really annoyed <laughs> because it had taken him ages to do it, but she managed to write her novel in three months. Wow! Yeah, ouch. That he, is good. It got a bit spicy between oh, yeah. them during the um, the tender as the night. Save me the waltz rivalry. Doesn't sound good. When well, they they obviously Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald were the um, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor of their day. And yes, that is the most modern analogy I can come up with. <laughs> <laughs> Which was basically the same day. Like it wasn't, they weren't too far off. You're right. It was about <laughs> ten years later. <laughs> Um, Sorry, anyway, on. yeah, when Zelda said she was going to write Save Me the Waltz, Scott was so annoyed that he wrote to the person who was going to publish her book saying, don't you dare publish it. He's got diary entries where he basically plots how to make sure that she doesn't write it. So he says, attack on all grounds, play, brackets, suppress, as in if she's writing a play, suppress it, novel, brackets, delay, pictures, brackets, suppress, as in she did a lot of art. Um, child, as in the child they had, brackets detach. Oh, I, it sounds wow. really bad. It, it is sounds, really bad. It does sound awful. Um, yeah. There and was one slight um, situation was that apparently her doctor said it was bad for her to write novels. 
apparently. Oh. And so that might have been one of the reasons why he tried to stop her. Got it. But he did, uh, they did have a chat about, you know, who was going to publish what, where he accused her of being a third-rate writer, a useless society woman with an Amazonian and lesbian personality. Mm. Um, which, wow. look, she didn't, she didn't love it, but all relationships have problems. Well, the thing is, when he said you're a third-rate writer, she said, it seems to me you're making a rather violent attack if I'm third-rate. Yeah, I mean, he was quite uh, attacked for his writing, wasn't he? He wasn't the best writer himself. As in the editing process... Wow. huge claim. I'm not claiming it. I'm, <laughs> I'm simply reading... So there was Edmund Wilson, uh, who was a, a critic. One of, the, one of the greatest yes. writers yeah. of all time. You Edwin. did just yeah, say yeah. he wasn't the best writer himself. <laughs> I'm saying there was a lot of criticism towards his writing at the time. So This Side of Paradise, one of the critics wrote, one of the most illiterate books of any merit actually published. Supposedly in the Great Gatsby editing process, punctuation marks just had to be removed because there were like hundreds of them. He just kept chucking them in and they're like let's get that back out that's what copy editors are for oh, yeah. exactly exactly but um, the best character definitely in the great gatsby has got to be jordan baker um, because she's a golfer she is a friend of daisy uh, and she is based on a real life person called edith cummings who was a friend of the fitzgeralds uh, and in the book jordan baker has got a bad reputation that she kind of cheats in golf um, but at the time, people saw that it was based on this Edith Cummings and said that actually Edith Cummings was as honest as she was bewitching uh, because she was famous for being a very, very attractive golfer. She was known as the Fairway Flapper. And she was the first golfer of any gender to appear on the cover of Time magazine. Oh, cool. Yeah. I can't believe you found the golf angle in I know. Oh. Gerald. Like, there's always a way, isn't there? You see a very distant fairway, you think, I can get there. What's so. it? He, he called Zelda something flapper as well. Yeah. Well, flapper was just a flappers. fashionable, fashionable woman. Oh, I'd never, yeah, I'd never Short heard that. Hair. No, no. But um, Zelda was good at golf, by the way, just to get us back she? to golf. Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry to try and move it away. Um, so um, Zelda and F. Scott Fitzgerald used to spend the summers at White Bear Lake where there was a golf course, and apparently she was much better at golf than he was. Oh, he wouldn't have liked that. No. So him and Zelda had quite an interesting start to their oh. marriage. I don't know how well she comes across. So she was very high society, very wealthy. I think her father was a Supreme Court judge or something. Mm. And he was, you know, fine. But he's, as you can see, if you read The Great Gatsby, he's kind of obsessed with this mm. posh people versus yeah. not posh people. Um, and so Zelda felt that he was beneath her. And so he, they had a relationship and then she kind of dumped him for being too poor. And then he wrote, I think it was, he wrote This Side of Paradise. It sold out in three days. He suddenly made lots of money. And within a week... She'd gone, all right, come on, <laughs> let's get married. Fair enough. Um, so F. Scott Fitzgerald's secretary, oh, yeah. Francis Kroll, right, the last secretary in his life. Okay, F. Scott Fitzgerald died in 1940, yeah. okay, age 44. Yeah. When do you think his last secretary died? Okay, Yesterday. Let's say she was 20 when she was his secretary yeah. in 1944, and she died when she was 100. Oh, the maths is going very badly for me. I don't <laughs> like so a lot of people work it out. She's, not, she's still alive. Yeah, all right. Okay, guys, you've already taken the sting out of this one. <laughs> She's dead. She, she, she died in 2015, age 99, so one year off James. Oh. But I just think that's amazing that, you know, yeah. she she would have remembered yeah. being Escott Fitzgerald's secretary, but she also saw, what's an event, like um, the alternative vote referendum or... Do you think those will be her two main memories <laughs> on her deathbed? Life flashes before my eyes. The AV well, referendum. The, Sc the Scottish, um, the Scottish um, independence vote, you know. Cannot believe that's the only place you could go from there. Okay. Yeah. The 2012 Olympics. <laughs> the fall of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> 
20, when was it? 2015? 2015. The, what, so when the, she died? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so she didn't see Leicester winning the premiership. No, <gasps> sadly. But she might have heard the first few episodes of No Such Thing as a Fish. <laughs> oh which my is... God. <laughs> Maybe that's what killed her then. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that to protect the city of Syracuse, Archimedes invented a giant claw that could lift enemy ships clean out of the water. It was so successful that Roman soldiers began to be scared of any piece of rope hanging from the city walls. <laughs> this is, I, just to quickly say, fucking insane. It's amazing, it's incredible. isn't it? So... Why were they scared of rope if it was a, the giant claw that... Because that's what presages the giant claw, isn't oh, it? Is you it, know, is you it? have a little bit of rope and you're like, oh shit, what's that rope attached to? And it's attached to the claw. Could be. So does the rope lead out ahead of the claw? Well, or you need you the rope because it's... The thing is with Archimedes, he was good at levers and pulleys and stuff like that. Lovely, so yeah. they all have ropes involved. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I've seen drawings of this. I mean, it's like a real life size. You know, when you go to the arcades and you've got the claw that you're trying yeah, to pick yeah. the top. It's like this giant claw. I don't think just... that. I don't think they're <laughs> contemporary drawings. <laughs> the <laughs> ones that you've seen. <laughs> they might be imaginations. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But like to show what size claw you'd need to pick up yeah, a, yeah, ship. a ship. It's pretty big. <laughs> so this is around two one two BC. Uh, we're talking the Second Punic War. Mm. Uh, Rome has taken over all of Italy but they need somewhere else to take over so they go down to Sicily uh, which is where Archimedes lived uh, and it was currently owned by Carthage which is uh, modern day Tunisia uh, but then the Romans managed to take over it but then the people in Syracuse the main city decided they're going to rise up so they start to rise up against the Romans the Romans siege the city and then Archimedes the great mathematician lives there mm. and he's like well I'm going to come up with all these great contraptions yeah. that are going going to stop the Romans from taking our city. And this was one of these. And the earliest we have for this particular claw thing is by someone called Polybius, who is writing only about 50 years after Archimedes died. So it's a reasonable yeah. chance that it was true. Do you know what's amazing about this fact is that one of the great Archimedes stories is that he created a sort of death ray for incoming ships. So mm. they would point mirrors and they would use and harness the sun and, and that would give this great beam that would burn holes into the ships and, yeah. and so on. Turns out that's not true. Now that's such that's such a shame because that's such mm. a wonderful thing. It's very rare that you then get given this gift of an even more batshit idea <laughs> that turns out to be true. We yeah, don't yeah. know. It's, so this is all stuff that's reported about him after. So that's Galen said that what, three centuries later or mm. something about the death ray. And we think it's probably not true because it seems completely impossible that you'd do it. Mostly because to focus a death ray, so the idea was you'd have huge mirrors I suppose that would be um, concave I guess and they'd focus a ray yeah. directly at a point on a ship yeah. but you need to focus it at one point for quite a long time and the ship is moving the ship is quite... moving around mm, yeah. you need a perfect still if you're still being day. sieged if you're That's being sieged point. they if might they, just they tied up the ship actually yeah. Anna it has been tried the death ray with the mirrors and the thing has it so some students at MIT I think it was in about 2007 or 8 mm -hmm. they got 127 mirrored tiles and an oak replica of a Roman ship and they proved it was possible did they? they did it Nice. Did they put it on the water? Uh, I, I don't know if they did it. You, or with, or with, I think they had to hold the ship in exactly the same place for six days or whatever. So 
it might be untrue, but it still might be possible. Okay. Yeah. So it one reason that it's prop, one reason it might be untrue is, like Anna says, it was quite a while after it happened that people wrote yeah. about it. Lucy, and I think, was the very first person in oh, 160 okay. AD. Uh, but the same story is told of another person, Proclus of Athens. And usually, when the same story is told about two or three different famous people, usually mm-hmm. it means it's probably a made mm-hmm. made uppy thingy. Do you think the grappling hook happened with well, the ships? I just can't. I just can't believe it, even though um, it's obviously people said it happened. But the descriptions are so extraordinary. So I think in Plutarch's description, uh, he said a ship was frequently lifted up to a great height in the air. A dreadful thing to behold, no shit. Uh, And was rolled to and fro and kept swinging until all the sailors were thrown out. I mean, it sounds like one of those rides at a theme park, actually. Yeah. You know, the... the, well, the swinging the pirate ship yeah. Ones. yeah. Yeah. What theme park are you going to that all of the people inside the ride have <laughs> shut down? Before they invented the safety bar. <laughs> um, yeah, Plutarch was writing around 10 AD, so that was quite a few hundred oh, years later. Okay, yeah. And I think whether it happened or not certainly as you get further away from the supposed time the stories get less and yeah, less realistic and big, yeah 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 I, I just love it Archimedes there's so many stories about him though. that's the thing isn't it like yeah. maybe the thing everyone gets taught is that he shouted Eureka and he jumped out of his bath yeah. because he discovered the Archimedes principle about displacing water he was weighing, like, trying to work out how much gold was in the king's crown. Was right? The... Yeah, he put it's... it in the bath, and the amount of water that tipped out told him how dense it was. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But he was an incredible mathematician. You know, he, was, he did brilliant work on the surface area of volume of spheres or centers of gravity and floating objects. And so they're really complicated ideas. And it seems unlikely he would have got so excited that he would have jumped That's out of true. his bath. And also, run he didn't naked. like baths. We, well, we know okay. that he didn't like to go in the bath. Again, according to Plutarch, so writing quite long down the, down the line. But he was writing, yeah, 200 years later, saying this guy was a stinky old guy who never took a bath. But he said that um, his servants used to take him against his will to the bath. Uh, and when he was in there, they would put oil on him. Uh, and instead of washing himself, he would draw like mathematical symbols on his body so he could do the maths on his own body. It's like, like when you draw, getting... like in the shower, when you kind of write your yeah. name on on the glass of the shower exactly like that I was thinking of it as a kind of clever way of getting a child to eat its peas that's really clever cover them with oil so they can write their (laughs) equations on their chest no I don't I just sort of mean it's a way of tricking Archimedes into washing himself basically pretending that he's a blackbird yeah exactly (laughs) like it's a sort of crafty I tried to find out more recent sources about Archimedes so um, you know the sites where you type in any celebrity's name basically and it gives you all the auto Google results oh yeah okay so I've been on whosdatedwho.com who is he dating right now Uh, apparently Archimedes is possibly single according to whosdatedwho.com I went on celebwiki.net measurements not available Um, bodybuild average are these sites what that, are you on about? What are these? What, you know these what like are you about? these automatically generated sites that just asset strip from all over right. the internet and they just come up with dubious figures of yeah. celebrity net worth or whatever. Yeah. I just thought I'd try it for Archimedes. And <laughs> yeah. it turns out he's on all these sites and they know <laughs> they don't know anything about him. They don't know anything about him. They've, they've got it right mostly, haven't Which they? Which just goes to show like if Plutarch found it hard, like now celebwiki.net is finding it even harder to do you track. think in a thousand years time there'll be a podcast going did you know Archimedes was of average build and I was bet. probably single I think so according to the sources that were written only 2000 years after he died um, something Syracuse he was in Syracuse right that's yeah, where he's yeah, from yeah. Uh, Syracuse had one very in particular thing in common with the UK today can you guess what it is 
Um, it was a services economy <laughs> uh, rather than goods based. <laughs> no. Did you say the UK? The UK. Or, yeah, you said the UK, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, you're never going to get this in a billion years. Ah, so was, it about, was it about golf? Did, did they have <laughs> It was that they only had one orrery maker. Oh my god! <laughs> so do you remember a couple of weeks ago we found out there was only one yeah. orrery maker in the UK? Yeah. Well, there was only one orrery maker in Syracuse, and it was Archimedes. Oh, wow! <laughs> because he invented it. But it, it feels like we've got them on the way up at his end, and on the way down at that end. It wasn't in decline then, was it? And a thousand no. years ago, in between those two points, like one in ten people made orrery full yes. time. Yeah. yeah. That's, I can't believe we didn't get that chance. That's so stupid. <laughs> it was looking you right in the face all the time. Damn it. He's such a mm. model for the kind of mad scientist trope, mm. isn't yeah. he? Because yeah. he was, yeah. and it must be true. I guess all these things must spring from a truth that he was so obsessed with his bloody mouth. You know, couldn't even get him in a bath. There must have been something to that. Yeah. He was incredible at golf because he could just calculate. He could count the shot. number of shots he played. Exactly. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just had one big lever. His golf club was one huge lever. Every, every shot was a putt for him. Do you know you can buy golf clubs where you hold it next to a ball yeah. and then it has a little mechanism inside the club head and it just fires out and shoots out and hits the ball exactly the right distance that you want it to go. What? So you don't have to swing you it don't or do anything. The swing? You just hold it still and it just shoots off. Kind of like the alien's jaws in Alien, you know, where it just yeah, opens yeah, up and yeah. it... <laughs> Yeah. Well, and what's the point in that? Because that doesn't seem to take away some of the playing. <laughs> you've still got to walk. You've still got to walk to where the ball is. That's a good point. Imagine you're a, a, a disabled person who can't swing a golf club, but you still want to play. So you still want to hit the ball and you mm-hmm. want to aim it and stuff like that, but you can't swing it. Nice. Okay, so you have to point it right, I guess. Oh, yeah, you've got to point you? it. Yeah. Uh, he calculated the total number of grains of sand in the universe as could possibly be in the universe. Um, he worked out that it was 10 to the power of 63. Um, and he worked that out by working out that the entire universe was about two light years in diameter, uh, and he was nowhere near. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he wasn't even in the same ballpark. You was, can't see picturing alien planets that have sand on it. So people had been saying that there was an infinite amount of sand, and yeah. he wanted to set, prove that actually there wasn't an infinite amount of sand. There was a finite amount, and I can prove that by looking at how big the universe is, looking at how big a grain of sand is, and working out that that there's a maximum that you could have yeah. and he said that that maximum was 10 to the power of 63 yeah. um, but unfortunately he didn't realize that he knew that there were five planets but he didn't know that there were an infinite number of universes <laughs> and planets yeah and, you know stuff the old all i have to do is look at how big the universe is and that feels like you're going to trip up at it's the looking at how big the universe yeah. is still, it's still very impressive it was good well, well yeah it it's... was impressive because he had to basically invent new bits of maths to do it because mm. they didn't really have big numbers in those days you could talk about you know 10,000 which is myriad yeah so that was basically the biggest number you could say I mean, that is myriad. really cool and then he came up with like a myriad to the power of a myriad which is oh. 10,000 to the power of 10,000 and then sort of extrapolated from there so weird the idea That's of inventing awesome. big numbers it's like inventing, <laughs> inventing big things yeah. Ooh, the biggest thing they it's, could think of was 10 metres high it's very, <laughs> it's very the impressive idea. you can see all the academics getting together and then someone going up to the board and revealing a new zero at yeah, the end. Yeah. Yeah. entire audience goes nuts has anyone yeah. considered 10,000 and one <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is 
Anna. My fact this week is that most black swallower fish specimens died because they ate too much and their stomachs exploded. Wow. Every weird Gosh. life trajectory they have. There's a lot weird going on in that sentence, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the black swallower fish is a type of fish. Uh, when I say specimens, I mean th- like ones that we've found. A specimen is something that, you know, a scientist looks at and researches. So it's not clear that this is how most of them die. It's just all the ones we've found have floated up to the top of the water mm. because this has happened. And the mm. reason this has happened is because they're amazing at swallowing. Sometimes <laughs> too good. So they're about 20 centimetres long. They can swallow prey that is over twice as long as them. I mean, one of them was found with prey four times as long as it in its body and 10 times the mass. Uh, so if you look up pictures of them, they're just the best. It looks like they're carrying a huge bit of carry-on luggage under their stomach, which is where they store this it's food. It's amazing. <laughs> they look absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But sometimes their eyes are too big for their stomachs and yeah. they'll eat something so huge that they can't digest it quickly enough before it starts decomposing. And when it starts decomposing, it releases all these gases in their stomachs and they inflate and they sort of float to the top like a helium balloon and they explode. And then that's where we find them pick them up and go look at this oh, it's amazing it's kind of not surprising these are the only ones we found because they live quite deep down don't they yeah, yeah. Very they, deep. they live in the twilight zone I know I love it or they live in the lower twilight and the upper midnight zone mm. there are two oh, different zones so. do you think lots of really weird stuff happens down there I that bet. they can't explain yeah well this I mean these things are really freaky one thing we don't know is how they the prey or we're not sure and it's basically whether they prey forwards or backwards <laughs> so they've got these teeth which retract you know like a stage dagger which kind of retracts yeah. and then pops yeah. back out so they've got those basically but that's, they're pointing backwards I think so yeah. the prey can push it it can push prey into its mouth and the prey then finds it incredibly hard to get out again yeah. mm. but it can go further in and so we think it either that's, of, that's a horrible option isn't it it's like you can't get out darling don't, but don't worry you can go further <laughs> in <laughs> what? well that's it they either bite from the tail end of the prey and just work their way up to the head yeah, or yeah. they bite the head and then work their way yeah, down they've got really sharp teeth don't they yeah but we but maybe they bite something too big and then they just have to keep going. You know, yeah, because not sometimes. only can the prey not escape, but we think that they can't spit anything out. Because no, exactly. Of these they're teeth. just locked into this thing. So they have yeah, to judge yeah. quite carefully how big what they're eating is. It's like if you go to the buffet and you can only go once, you have to really nail it. You get the biggest piece of turkey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then yeah. you have to, it's like but, you have to finish it, otherwise <laughs> yeah, they won't yeah. let you leave. And you're like, you've still got five sausage rolls there. And you're like, oh, no, I knew it. Uh, the black swallower fish was discovered in 1864 by someone called James Yates Johnson. Uh, and he is possibly more notable or as notable uh, for discovering a load of other fish and spiders, but also for donating the moss collection to the Natural History Museum of Madeira. Ooh. So just a little of moss. Do you know, James, Thank you. it's probably more moss facts at this point in our show from you. Than <laughs> yeah, it's becoming a thing. Andy teed it up back in the day. But I'm going to have to hand over the moss trousers yeah. at some point. <laughs> oh, uh, Jesus I Christ. Know. Please wash them first. <laughs> um, one cool thing we should say is that their belly are stretched so thin that they are transparent so you do get get a good view it's like having a window into their soul it's interesting you get quite a few of these animals that can eat whole prey Mm -hmm. Um, not just this one but most of them not most of them maybe about a quarter of them have got black guts inside of their guts has got like a black layer so that if you eat something which glows when you eat it you don't want it to be glowing inside your tummy otherwise all of your enemies are going to be able to come mm. and eat you and so they have this black lined stomach which stops the glow from so coming out cool. um, but the black swallow doesn't have that I don't think that would be really weird if you yeah 
You could see what someone's eating. Yeah. 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 I, do you think it would help us eat more healthily if we walked around and everyone could look in your stomach and go, oh yeah, three pizzas last night. Wow. So, I so, think it would. <laughs> so we're yeah. not allowed clothes in this scenario. Uh, they what? have to be transparent. Just one little transparent window in the middle of your t-shirt. Oh, like uh, Rihanna's uh, pregnancy outfit, <laughs> where she showed off her sure. tummy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really? And so yeah, yeah. Come on, guys, keep up. Did you, did you call her Rihanna? <laughs> yeah, I really leaned into the H. I think. Yeah. <laughs> For all I know, that's how she pronounces it, but I don't think so. Mate, I think she does, but only in private. And, uh, she doesn't, um, yeah, yeah. It sounds like you sent in an email to someone about Hannah. Rihanna what do we think of her clothing choice today not appropriate for the office I say Um, you know dolphins yeah you know how they how do they breathe through their blowholes yeah well exactly exciting news scientists in New Zealand have found a dolphin that breathes through its mouth (laughs) it's called Hector's dolphin the species oh, yeah. or the subbreed of dolphin and it's, oh. it's specifically it's not actually the whole species it's literally one guy one what? dolphin who, who no. breathes through his mouth so, sorry yeah. is he like congested in his blowhole they've, 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 they've noticed uh, some weird be. thing about the way the trachea links up to the blowhole and how actually he might have been injured or something but anyway he's found a way around whatever this past uh, injury was or yeah. event in his life and now he just goes around breathe, like a dork breathing through his mouth wow. that's so amazing <laughs> yeah I wonder if he looks at humans and thinks I belong there like the little mermaid (laughs) so other fish that have interesting ways of eating food one of them is the lancet fish Mm. and mostly this is good because it's sort of vaguely similar to the black swallower in that its contents of its stomach are often in completely pristine condition because it again eats these huge meals so we think it's often fish that live very deep and don't get meals very often so when you do you've got to really eat shed loads Mm. It's about seven foot long. It's very big. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. But it will gorge on all these meals and then they just sit in its stomach for ages. Mm. But it means that lots of the new species that we discover of fish and squids and octopus are based on opening up the contents of the stomach. And then you just get a bunch of new species fall out. Uh, The other interesting thing about lancet fish is that um, they don't see each other very often because they live quite deep down. And so when they see another lancet fish, they're going to want to mate with it. And they don't want to, you know, have problems with genders and stuff like that mm. so if two lancer fish come together um, they're hermaphrodites and they can change when they meet a new one do they argue about that well i thought it but you know like when you're walking down a pavement and yeah. you're not sure to turn left or to yes. turn right because someone's walking yeah. towards you i imagine there's a lot of that going on yeah. so what there are some times where they accidentally both change to male yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry sorry they both change to female oh, oh sorry, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry they sorry. have a little laugh about it and then move on <laughs> let's call the whole thing off what so do you end up just having sex with that person james <laughs> if you're in a remote enough place it's actually wisest to have sex with that person because yeah. you might not see someone for days if you're going on a country walk you know, yeah. it's, it's safest <laughs> to, um, I guess it's our, our responsibility to repopulate the earth what? we're in Henley <laughs> I found a pretty weird fish mm-hmm. oh, yeah? that I want to mention um, yeah this is called the Caligono and it's mm-hmm. in Lake Malawi in East Africa okay. and it's what's known as kind of like a sleeper fish um, it, right. it, it does this thing where it pretends not to be a fish for most of its life and then it just comes to life as a fish <laughs> exactly it's sort of you know hanging out with some crabs <laughs> sort of pretending to be part of the family getting all the info waiting for the moment to arrest uh, no this is this is a fish that 
plays dead basically in order to eat oh. food and it lays down and it just plays dead and smaller fish will come to sort of either check it out or maybe yeah. get a nibble on it and as they come it suddenly goes wah and jumps oh my God. jumps up well not jumps but like you know li- li- whatever Leaps. whatever fish do swims swims up <laughs> And eats everyone. Eats all the spectators. It's like going to, to a neck. buffet and you get eaten by the sausage yeah, roll. Exactly. Exactly. I've got a slightly, slightly off piece thing about uh, guts because this was about the black swallower and how it eats. Yes. So I was finding out about uses of um, cow guts. Right. Oh yeah. Did you know that like top flight tennis rackets all used to be made of cow intestines? It was used on the strings, wasn't it? It was the strings. But until about ten years ago, as in like really recently. Um, there was this Norfolk firm called Bow Brand, right? Mm-hmm. And I read a few news articles about them, and it, they made tennis racket strings and harp strings oh, yeah. out of cow guts. Oh. So, well, yeah. imagine if you accidentally got those mixed up. That'd be a very <laughs> melodious game of tennis. <laughs> Turn up with your harp on court. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I, I gave them a ring because I oh, thought yeah, I can't, be- I can't believe this. Mm. It's true. Mm. And they said, "Oh yeah, we don't do it anymore." Oh. But up until about ten years ago, we did. Uh, and it took four cows to make one tennis racket. No. What? Yeah. That's too many cows for each. Because ta- they use like five tennis rackets per game. I know. Yeah. And that's why you'll often see around the edge of the court, like 20 cows. <laughs> no. just, just waiting <laughs> just to be anxious sacri- look on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can play on with that racket, actually, Roger. Um, At least no. they didn't use silkworm guts. Do you remember we talked about that? <laughs> I look at that. Yeah. Not a silkworm. Yeah. Was that just they the top end players or is that every No, this is top flight. And they used to have, no, top end. And they used to have a, like, they used to send a team to Wimbledon. They would have a, like a, a little place where they would restring your rackets for you for the top players, and they would, oh yeah, you know, a stable yeah. where they do that, wasn't it, <laughs> around the back? Yeah, and the, I, anyway. that's where they come out blood splatters <laughs> when they go back onto the courts. Um, so yeah. they all made, but they're all like plastic now. Are they? I are. think they are. Yeah, and they said I, I spoke to a really nice lady at Bow Brand, so thank you to her for talking to me for quite a long time actually about this stuff. And she said that demand really slackened off about ten years ago, um, but fortunately it coincided with a huge increase in demand for harp. No idea why, but basically they just pivoted the business. Uh, did you ask her, like, what happened 10 years ago with that harp and then suddenly it played in the background as she thought about what happened? Um, the Sloan's Viper fish uh, can eat very big things and it does it by opening its jaw up um, to over 90 degrees. So it massively what? opens its mouth yeah. and is doing it na- uh-huh. right now. I think I can go over 90, actually. Actually, how big do you think your mouth gape is there, Anna, would you say? A circumference or... Let's angle, say... Angle. No, no, top to bottom in centimetres. Oh. You'd have to ask Archimedes. Uh, <laughs> uh, it says here, so... Yeah. 4.5? 4.5. The largest mouth gape of any woman in the world is 6.52 centimetres. So you're getting there. It's Samantha Ramsdale. Uh, she can bite through four single stacked cheeseburgers in one go really? and fit an entire large sized french fries from mcdonald's in her mouth oh wow standing up <laughs> so she eats fries vertically is that what you're saying oh, I think, like no. you bundle them like straws yeah 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 i thought you meant the full length no, 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 no. She eats fries. that's a real like she eats fries vertically it's <laughs> <laughs> some kind of sick burn <laughs> Uh, she can be seen on TikTok sometimes um, with a guy called Isaac Johnson who has the male record gape. 
and his is 9.52 centimeters. Oh, oh that god, is that's big. big. Are, they, are they a couple? Because I want to see them snog. snog. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh no one wants to see that, do they? Whoa. Oh my god. They can um, snog, but they can hold a billiard ball in between their tongues as they're doing it. <laughs> um, Isaac can fit objects such as a baseball, a soda can, or a large apple. <laughs> oh, that's really put it in context for me, yeah. I once saw a really big apple at the offices of WeBuyAnyCard.com in um, Haringey. I reckon he could fit that in because it was a fucking massive apple. Oh. Good Sorry, plug for WeBuyAnyCard.com. Think... Yeah, I'd like to drill down into this a bit. Like, um, was I, it this... on display? Was it, you know, you think, I reckon... you think our cars are good? Wait till you... You should have... <laughs> Honestly, this apple was so massive. Yeah, it was, was it Dan's got like a large coffee cup here I reckon yeah. it was as tall as that oh, that's right. really? and all I could do when he was talking to me was look at this apple because it was so massive <laughs> were you trying to sell them a car at the time I gave them yeah sold them a car yeah <laughs> you gave gave them. Them. <laughs> I'll you know take what? one apple <laughs> Oh my god, it's Jack and the Beanstalk all over again. You go home, your aged mother is saying, Did you manage to sell the car to let us live? No, but I got this big old apple. Can I just say, in Jack and the Beanstalk, right, the moral of that story is that you should sell your cow for beans because he gets the beans and he gets a massive beanstalk and then he gets a golden chicken or something. And how much he? of that have a golden chicken? Golden chicken. <laughs> You've misread that story. <laughs> Does he not get a golden it's head? Golden or goose. Golden yeah. goose. Does he yeah, get a golden goose? The giant, he steals the giant, the giant climbs down the beanstalk after him, and then he has to cut the beanstalk down. Yeah, but he and does all that. Yeah. Like basically, he's taken a risk at the very start of that story. You know selling his car or whatever it was for some beans <laughs> and then he's had to go through a few troubles but at the end he gets a golden goose that yeah. lays golden eggs so the moral I... of the story is do something stupid <laughs> at the end it'll work out fine uh, uh, are you trying to justify giving away your car for an apple because it feels like you are how much it's a big apple okay? it's not any old apple Look, my wife didn't buy this and you guys aren't buying it either <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that there is a cathedral in Norway currently restoring its rooftop with large amounts of urine from a retired field horse called Norik. <laughs> Norik likes to pee into a bucket at specific times every single day. Wow. So... A lot to unpack there. Yeah. A lot to unpack here with this story. I should just quickly say I got sent this story by a friend of mine, Riggs, who lives in Norway. Uh, she oh, spotted yeah. it and it was a calling out for horse urine. So the story is basically that there is a very old cathedral there. It's called Nidaros Cathedral. It's in Trondheim. Mm. And the idea is that they're doing the roof at the moment. But the problem is, is that in order to get the roof back to the state that they want to get it to, they need to oxidize the copper. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, it's been discovered that you can use horse urine or cow urine. Uh, mm. So to oxidize the copper you mean like it goes from the shiny color to like a green color exactly so if you know a green color on a cathedral roof mm -hmm. that is the state that it needs to be in but it takes a long time to do that and it can okay. take decades in fact mm. but by using horse urine they are able to speed up the process the issue is where do you get that much horse urine on? from a horse from a horse right <laughs> but mm. you know who's going to give you that urine you need to do a calling out to the world yeah. or specifically to that very tiny bit of norway and so that's what they did the people said do you have horse urine we need it and this was spotted <laughs> by someone who has a very old horse called norik who yeah. has this very curious thing which is that norik likes to pee at certain times indoors every day right and so what they do is they bring norik in he comes for his daily pee at a certain time and he's been supplying sort of most of the pee amazing okay. they sent it on facebook didn't they yeah uh, it's on a group called it happens in binneset 
which I think is a town near Trondheim. Uh, and they said, hello, a somewhat special request, but we would love to get our hands on about four to five litres of horse urine. Um, if you have an opportunity to help with this, feel free to contact Henning Grot, stonecutter at the cathedral. I'm interested that they collect it in a bucket because that does imply that someone's waiting there all the time. You don't know when a horse is going to wee. You just go into the stable and they've done it all over the hay. But this is the point, though. So it chooses and does it over the bucket. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's actually a video that you can see online. So Norik is about to take a pee. It's basically just a shot of his penis in camera. And then a, the urine starts coming out. A bucket comes underneath it and starts collecting. Yeah. So actually there's a stable hand who has to sit in the stable all day every day until he starts peeing and then shove the bucket underneath this, his willy this is how you get a urine sample from a horse I was looking up how you do it mm-hmm. and I was on the website horsesidevetguide.com mm-hmm. and it said what you do is you get a disposable coffee cup so Dan's got a disposable coffee cup here uh, and you attach that to a broom handle and then you wait for the horse to start peeing and then you just move it slowly into position ah. and then you catch the midstream urine which is the good stuff if yeah. you're testing really? horses' health. Yeah, if yeah, you yeah. want to at home picture how big my cup is by the way it's roughly the same size as a big apple. <laughs> well, like a huge apple. Just, that's just for the listener. Right? Like an apple that I would say would be worth a car. In... <laughs> There's a few different ways that they could have done this instead of putting um, horse urine on the on the roof mm. um they could have covered it in hard-boiled eggs okay. um, and that would have done the job um they could have used miracle grow plant fertilizer i've got some of that, that does, well All you right. can use that to oh. oxidize your copper oh great and is that what is that because of nit- nitrogen it's the ammonia we it's, think in the urine isn't yeah, it yeah so in the u- in the urine it's ammonia um now urine doesn't have any ammonia in it but it does contain things that bacteria like and you have bacteria in the air so that bacteria goes into the urine and then the bacteria creates ammonia so you couldn't use just fresh out of the horse urine you need to leave it to stand for a bit Uh, but sulfur also works and that's what you get with your hard-boiled eggs That's so clever. It would stink, though. You've smeared egg sulfur all over your church well, roof. Well, more than horse piss. Yeah, actually, that. Yeah. Another one horrendous. you could do would be uh, salt and vinegar crisps, apparently. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is apparently a, an age-old... Can't be that old. <laughs> but it's it's a way of doing this. That that's, you how see they did, the... that's how they did Westminster Abbey originally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just back to this idea about, you know, Norwick going in at certain times and peeing mm. into mm-hmm. the bucket. Um, I was reading a blog the other day, and it actually has this really interesting thing, which is that horses can be taught to pee on command. Okay. They can be toilet trained. They can be toilet trained. Really? Mm. But what about that old saying, you can take a horse to the toilet, but you can't make it piss? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, well, in the article that I was reading, it did sort of say that what it's used for really is, you know, horse shows. If a horse is going out into the ring and it's about to do an act, you don't want your horse shitting and pissing everywhere do you and Mm. so so if you can get your horse to go beforehand by you know teaching it when to go you're fine Mm. so what you need to do is when you see a horse pissing yeah quickly go up beside it okay and just start whistling just go (laughs) and whistle to the exact length of their pee now obviously you might not have that much breath so you know catch your breath Mm. back into the whistle yeah no 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 i know what a whistle sounds like (laughs) great so you've done that go away you're seeing the horse pee again later. Go back quickly to its side. Yeah, yeah. As it's peeing. <laughs> Do this for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh-huh. And then after weeks, you'll find that when you go near a horse that probably needs a pee and you go, 
it's it, it goes the other way around the horse starts peeing to your whistle <laughs> amazing <laughs> it's a, it's it's suddenly you're the you're enabling the piss via your whistle it's not much of a superpower is it <laughs> <It's> <laughs> well, making any horse piss on demand <laughs> <laughs> I th- and so you could you get therapy horses though don't you or guide horses some Do blind you? people who are allergic to dogs have to have guide ponies uh, like a, just a small pony, Shetland. Yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. a little Shetland pony, not um... Shire horse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I haven't been on the London Underground when a horse comes on the carriage. No, but that is that, that is a thing. Yeah. I guess they have to have some kind of training system. Yeah, or, well, you I can mean, pee. I mean, are, well, there are nappies as well. You can get horse nappies. You said that as if it was a really <laughs> standard piece of information. <laughs> I thought it was. What? So, who wears the nappies? The guide horses. Well, yeah, yeah, or horses that are you know doing. I guess presentations. I no, that's, that's worse. In dressage, you'd rather your horse just weed than you've got some huge nappy. Rodin used urine on his sculptures. Um, not really? horse urine, but he used to instruct his assistants to go out into the um, his like outdoor studio and urinate all over the bronze statues in the yard. Oh, bronzes. I was thinking stone. I just thought, well, that won't yeah. have a reaction. But okay, bronzes. He didn't, okay. He didn't piss on the kiss. <laughs> Sadly, not. Um, so actually, he just got his helpers to pee on it. He didn't collect them or anything. He just said, "Go and piss on that." It's, it's, it's a studio, yeah. isn't it? It's like Damien Hirst. Damien Hirst often won't piss on his own um, stuff. Will he not? No. no. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't piss on your own stuff. Yeah. Save that so. for the critics. Uh. <laughs> um, well, Vincent Van Gogh also um, used cow urine. There's this colour called Indian yellow, which was this huge secret, and it came in these balls, and it was really popular in the 19th century because it's an unbelievably vivid dye, mm. and no one knows how it was made, and it was this huge secret, and it turns out that this village in India called Mirzapur was taking its cows, and it was restricting their diet basically only to mango leaves. Oh, and then, yeah. <laughs> and there's, there are some claims and counterclaims about it, but there's pretty good evidence that it did happen. Yeah, and yeah. they would take the, the cow's piss and they would heat it and they'd bake it down to a syrup, basically. They'd dry the syrup so it's ultra pure. And uh, The Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. Cow piss. You're seeing cow piss when you really? see those stars, yeah. No way. Go, you should go and stand. What gallery is it in? I want someone to go and stand there and just tell everyone who comes and starts admiring it. Like, <laughs> cow piss, you know? <laughs> cow piss. Hmm. Um, you can use horse urine to grow pineapples. Really? Uh, which they do at the Lost Gardens of Heligan, which is in Cornwall. Uh, and this, yeah. they still make pineapples in that old way that they used to. So do you remember how we said that you used to be able to buy a pineapple for the same price as a car? Now I know what you're going to say. <laughs> you got confused. You thought it was a pineapple. <laughs> When you, said, when you saw this really big apple dance, was it spiky? And did it have, like, green spines? It was uh, open brackets, pine, closed brackets, apple. <laughs> no, so, like, pineapples used to be really expensive because they yeah. were so expensive oh, yeah. to grow in the UK yeah. because we don't have the climate. And so the Lost Gardens of Heligan in Cornwall still make them in the old-fashioned way. And the way that they do that is they get a greenhouse, but they heat up the greenhouse by putting horse manure and horse urine and piles of straw in the corner. And they kind of, like a compost heat, will get hotter and hotter, and that heats up the building. What? Um, but it does mean every pineapple costs £1,200 to grow. That's a um, lot. So it's a lot of money for one pineapple, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and they reckon that the pineapple that they're growing at the moment, or might have just grown, um, is going to be worth around £10,000 in total because of not just how much it costs to make, but also its rarity and stuff like that. Um, but even though it's worth that much, they're not going to sell it. They're going to cut it up and feed it to their staff. 
Nice. Mm, wow. It's quite nice, isn't it? Yeah. I did read that um, when they started doing this, they gave the second one they'd grown to the queen. Oh, that's great. But they did make sure that they tasted the first one to ensure that it did not taste of horse urine. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. That is a risk. Um, on urine collection, mm. the first ever people doing IVF. Oh, so yeah. very early patients. This was... Um, when was it? Seventies, I think. Well, Louise Brown was seventy-seven, I think. Okay, yeah, yeah. So um, the two doctors who were pioneering it really were called Robert Edwards and Patrick Steptoe, and um, it was really uh, old Steptoe, and it's quite controversial. You know, they yeah. refused various grants because it was kind of creating life artificially. But early patients had to live in the centre basically for two or three weeks as inpatients while mm. this was going on, and they had to collect all of their urine during treatment because they needed to monitor their hormone levels. So they just had oh, to yeah. carry these huge plastic containers every time they went off-site. They, just they did have an amazing pineapple garden around the planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, really, so it was really basic stuff. And the other thing they had to do was after your embryos were inserted back into you, uh, the women had to spend an hour or two crouching down with their bottoms in the air just in case in case gravity helped they weren't sure whether Isn't it helped or not wasn't it the case by the way I actually don't have any information on this but I remember reading that in the early days of penicillin we didn't have enough penicillin itself to go around for every patient mm. so what they would do is they would give a patient some of the penicillin and then wait at the other end of them mm. for it to come out yeah. through their pee yeah. and they would extract the remaining penicillin that was in there and then give that to another patient because you would have thought that you have metabolized the useful bits of the penicillin oh, yeah, so surely it's diluting and diluting and diluting but I guess you've maybe got a enough left over in it that it's worth extracting from the pee that's yeah. really gross <laughs> um i was reading an article which said that action must be taken over the surprisingly widespread problem of stable staff urinating into racehorses bedding <laughs> I, I saw that <laughs> did you yeah and what's the problem oh well, it's just horrible for the horses because oh, they've got yeah. a bed covered in groom piss well Why that's not a problem that? the problem is the testing uh, the, no, the, I don't, it's a problem. Not... It's bad for the horses. It's bad for the horses. You don't want to like lie them down on sort of wet, damp hay or straw. Horses sleep on their urine a lot. But they should be mucked out. They should be, you know. But when you muck out the horse's hay, you're going to muck out the human urine with the horse urine, aren't you? I also think, though, if I, you know, God forbid, ever wet the bed, I don't want other people coming pissing on my bed, going, "Well, you've already done it, so I might <laughs> yeah, as well exactly. as well." Exactly. Yeah. Do you think it's well, it probably is worse? Like your own farts smell okay, but someone else is really. <laughs> it feels horrible. like it'll be less. I don't really want to sleep on my own wet bed. Yeah. But I would rather do that if it was a choice between that and the bed that Andy's pissed in. Thank you. Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> great. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> no, I thought they were saying it was for the horse's benefit, but you're saying it's also for the problem of doping. The reason it came up... Because the grooms up, are all, all coked off their heads. The reason it came it, yeah. up is because the grooms are all coked off their heads. Um, the but reason they don't it test came the up, straw. Yeah, they do. What? They test the straw? Yeah, you some, often you'll get you'll do the testing by testing the horse's straw because that's where you get the horse urine for. So the bedding will get tested oh, as a sample. And there's a trainer whose horse was found to have been sort of doping, but I think with something that you wouldn't dope with, like marijuana or something. I can't remember actually what it right. was. Um, but it turned out to be caused by mm -hmm. the stable staff urinating in the box while he was mucking it out. This horse has been asking a lot of big questions about the universe. Listen <laughs> <laughs> to a lot of jazz. I don't really... <laughs> Okay.
Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. James? At James Harkin. And Anna? You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. Check it out. It's awesome. It's got all of our previous episodes up there. It's got a link to the tickets for our final leg of our Nerd Immunity Tour. We're going to be doing that in September of this year. Come check it out. It's an awesome night. We would love, love, love to see you guys there. Uh, but if you can't make it, don't worry, because we'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.